0: Chris Wolf has always been DC based. He started in privacy with a pro bono case. Now, Chris serves on many nonprofit boards. His fascinating story just can't be ignored. So, on today's podcast, I am happy to be joined by Chris Wolf, who is the founder and board chair of the Future Privacy Forum. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks, Noah. Thanks for having me. Excellent, so you grew up uh, in DC. So uh, talk a little bit about your childhood growing up. Did you ever envision yourself being involved in privacy and you know, did you envision yourself uh, going to law school? So I'm one of the rare
1: natives. I think there are, there, there's a group of us here in DC who are natives of, of Washington. We're, we're known colloquially as uh, cave dwellers because we sort of linger beneath the surface as the politicians come and go. And so I was born 67 years ago, and there've been a lot of politicians during that time. And we, we kind of uh, survived the, the changes uh, over time. Uh, my family was never in government or politics. Uh, I had some lawyers in my family. And so, yes, I, I always thought I would uh, be a lawyer. Um, I majored in political science at uh, Bowdoin College and then went to law school at uh, W&L. Um, And thought I would just be uh, not just but thought I would be a litigator for most of my life. Um, Privacy wasn't even on the horizon. Um, Obviously, in constitutional law courses, uh, when we studied the Fourth Amendment, uh, privacy issues came up. But no one, I think, thought that you could really make a practice focusing uh, exclusively or even generally on privacy uh, until probably late into the uh, 90s or early 2000s, which is when coincidentally I, I got into it full steam.
0: That's great. So, growing up, did you have any kind of uh, you know what was your first job, uh, high school job type um, type thing? And you know, how has that experience uh, translated, or do, do you still think about that that time?
1: Uh, I I do. I I had a very menial first job when I was 15. Um, I was, I had a weekend job cleaning the parking lot of the junior hot shops at Wisconsin Avenue and and East West Highway in Bethesda. I actually grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside uh, D.C., Uh, even though I've lived in D.C. ever since I came back from law school. Uh, It was a grueling job, you know, uh, the asphalt baking under the Washington summer sun and picking up other people's trash and then hosing off the parking lot. It, It really gave me a great appreciation of of those kinds of jobs and the people who do them, uh, and it made me also appreciate, you know, the benefits of education and the kinds of uh, jobs you can get with education. So that's always stuck with me. Um, I'm, I'm reading a little book by uh, retired Admiral uh, McRaven, who who reflects on lots of experiences he had in his life. He was a Navy SEAL, a lot far more illustrious position than I've ever held. Uh, but you know, he talks about the hard labor and the defeats that he had and experiences that he had that helped shape him as as a leader uh, later in life. And I, I reflect on the experiences like that as well, as I sort of scope out how my career uh, developed.
0: Yeah, that's great. So then after that, you uh, went to Bowdoin College. So just talk, you know, a little bit about that experience And it was a little while ago. But Um, Sure. Did you have any kinds of uh, internships there? And uh, what what was that like? I've
1: always had a love for the state of Maine. Uh, I was privileged enough to go there for summer camp for six years as a kid. Uh, First at a very competitive athletic camp and then uh, at a music camp because I played the trumpet there and for 30 years thereafter. Um, And uh, so... You know, my summers were, were in Maine and I loved, it, loved the place. And as a result, I got to know Bowdoin College, which was founded in 1820 and has uh, a few illustrious uh, alumni like Hawthorne and Longfellow and Senator William Coleman and uh, former Senator George Mitchell, Secretary of State George Mitchell. Uh, anyway, it was a great place, really wonderful small college liberal arts uh, education, but it also included a year uh, that I my junior year that I split up uh, the first half, I uh, ran a political campaign for a friend of mine running for the state Senate in Maryland and did that through the Hamilton College Washington semester so I could get some academic credit for it. And then I went to the London School of Economic for two of its three terms in 74, 75. And that was probably the most eye-opening uh, experience that I had during college as much as I loved Bowdoin. Uh, living in London was just an amazing experience, uh, and it really helped shape my my, my worldview uh,
0: later later in life. Interesting. Can you go into that a little bit? Why would why did it have a, such an impact?
1: So I got to meet people who weren't just from you know prep schools and prestigious uh, public schools on the East Coast. Uh, that that was mostly who went to Bowdoin. And so I met people from lots of different backgrounds. My roommate, uh, when I went to the LSC, was the son of a coal miner from the Liverpool area. Uh, you know, he was 19 years old. He was missing teeth. He didn't bathe regularly, and he was a real socialist. And so, you know, it was interesting to to have conversations with him. And then there were people from all over the world, uh, different races, different nationalities. So that was, you know, just a broadening experience, one that was very, very good for me. I think.
0: Excellent. Uh, so immediately after that, then uh, you ended up going to law school at Washington and Lee.
1: I did. My brother had gone there for seven years, and so it was kind of a family tradition. And I should say at the outset that there was absolutely nothing in sort of the consciousness of 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 anybody, liberal or conservative, about. Uh, Washington and Lee being named in part for General Lee. You know, obviously he was a presence on campus. He was buried in the chapel there, but it, it was never really an issue. It was kind of a given. Although I do remember when my brother went to W. L. in the 60s, there was a billboard uh, right at the entrance to Route 11 off of Interstate 81 to come into town that said impeach Earl Warren following the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And there were there were Confederate flags, but everybody sort of chalked that up to the townies and didn't think about the college being at all associated with uh, with General Lee. And that was certainly true at the law school, which was a much more sophisticated, frankly, and uh, and and more liberal-leaning place than the undergraduate campus. Uh, so, it, you know, it was it was different than most law schools, I think, though, because it was a very small community. Uh, one away from town. So all there was to do was really go to law school and then socialize with your classmates. Um, and so there was a, a, a great sense of, uh, of community and camaraderie, which you don't get, I think, in a lot of law schools uh, then or even even now. It's more like a, a trade school uh, for most people. And for me, it was a place where I, you know, I, I, I created a lot of friendships that continue to this day 40, uh, 41 years after our graduation. Um, So it was a terrific experience. Um, I had some wonderful faculty members who I stayed in touch with, stay in touch with to this day. Uh, But all along, I thought I was going to be a litigator because that's what my grandfather did. It's what my uncle and cousin did. It's what my brother did. Um, And so that was my goal. And so following law school, I got a clerkship with a federal judge here in Washington who coincidentally, and not coincidentally, but by the way, was the second African-American judge appointed by Lyndon Johnson in 1965. Aubrey Robinson Jr. was his name, is a spectacular person to work for. And that was a two-year clerkship. The first one, first year uh, being focused on criminal law and the second year uh, focused on the civil docket. And he just happened to have some really fascinating cases. Uh, I was very lucky to have that. I can tell you about a couple of them if you're interested. Go for it. So the, in the first year, uh, he handled uh, a criminal case against the three prominent leaders of the Church of Scientology. At the time, the church was trying to get its uh, tax exempt status as a religious institution, which had been denied it by the federal government. And it was in litigation with the federal government and unhappy over the discovery that it was getting through the process, it uh, it actually engineered the break-in of the Justice Department, The the uh, IRS and the federal court, uh, just remarkable uh, you know, hubris to, to do something like that. And they got caught and they got arrested. That case was tried uh, before Judge, Judge Robinson. And I was the clerk assigned to that. So that was fascinating. And then just before I finished my clerkship, uh, there was a case brought challenging the reapportionment of congressional districts in and around Atlanta. Uh, Senator Julian Bond, who's a famous civil rights leader, had uh, drafted up uh, congressional districts and the House reapportionment chairman, who was a Republican uh, white supremacist, frankly, uh, was quoted on the record as saying he wasn't going to endorse any N districts, using the N word. Uh, So the Justice Department brought a case challenging uh, the reapportionment that resulted from the House uh, uh, redrawing of the Julian Bond district. That was a brought in the District of Columbia before the three judge panel included my judge and I was assigned to, to staff that and to draft the findings of the fact and conclusions of law. Uh, the first finding of fact I drafted not ever thinking it would remain in the, in the court's uh, opinion was that the chairman of the reapportionment committee was a racist citing the transcript and they left it in. And the headline in the Atlanta constitution was House Reapportionment Committee chair called racist by court, wow. and the Supreme Court upheld that ruling, and that was the district that resulted was the district that uh, John Lewis uh, ran for and held, and he held that seat until he died uh, last year. Uh, he ran against Julian Bond, as it, as it turned out, and I had the, the great honor of meeting John Lewis and Julian Bond at the same time at an event for the Anti Defamation League with which I'm very involved uh, here in Washington. I, I told them that story and they, they heaped praise upon my judge. And uh, I said, if he were alive today, he'd be heaping praise right back on you. So that was that was a great experience that obviously has stuck with me for life.
0: Well, wow, wonderful uh, history there. So after that, then after your clerkship, um, you stayed in DC or at that point you moved uh, to California?
1: Nope, always stayed in DC. and yes. uh, and uh, worked at Arnold and Porter, where I got really fantastic training. I was there for, for four years and uh, you know, I keep up the friendships from the experiences that I've had there. Irv Nathan is a dear friend. He was the, the, uh, the Attorney General for the District of Columbia. Most recently, he was General Counsel for the House of Representatives. He was uh, head of the criminal division at the Department of Justice. So he was a great teacher for me. And uh, another great uh, colleague was uh, Merrick Garland, who's now Attorney General. And uh, Rob Weiner, uh, who works at the Campaign Legal Center, as well as Arnold Porter and, and many others. So I've kept that's that again. That's one one of the I think trademarks of my experiences in life is that I've always uh, been able to develop uh, great friendships and to keep those friendships and nurture them over time. And and you know when I look back over over my career, that's probably one of the great uh, joys that I that I have is being able to have those friendships to call upon and to uh, to to cherish.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great words of uh, words of advice. So um I guess the California aspect, you ended up working on a trial uh, in Silicon Valley. So you can talk right. a bit, you know about about that and that experience and how that ended up persuading you to work on internet law.
1: Sure. And there's a little little preface to that if you'll indulge me. So I went from Arnold and Porter to the Washington office of Ballard Spar, which is a philadelphia firm Uh, i went there as a senior associate and became partner there in 1987. Uh, and then from there went with uh, one of my the person who had recruited me to that firm uh, to a firm called proskauer rose uh, a new york uh, old new york firm illustrious firm uh, in the washington office i was actually there for 20 years from uh, from uh, 1989 to, to 2009 and you know, when you're a partner at a law firm, as many partners listening to this uh, podcast or even those wanting to be partner might might know, uh, you know one of one of your uh, obligations is to, to develop business or or to service business. But obviously, developing business is the uh, coin of the realm in law firms. And uh, I was able to to do that by being involved in a number of nonprofits. One of which was the National Symphony Orchestra. And uh, I was in the basement of the Kennedy Center with the general counsel of MCI, which some of your listeners will remember was the challenger to AT&T for long distance uh, telecommunications when at and had a monopoly. Um, and I got to know him, he gave me a couple of cases and then he gave me a really big case involving the joint development of a piece of equipment that, that really was part of the backbone to the internet. And that case was tried in California to get to your question. Um, In San Jose, the lead up to the case took a couple of years. Um, So I was going back and forth. And then the trial was actually a three month long jury trial in San Jose. Before Judge uh, James James Ware. Uh, Happily, we won that case and that was sustained on appeal. But, you know, that was in the early 90s and I was learning a lot through experts about the Internet. And when I came back to Washington, I said kind of facetiously, I think this Internet is going to be something. This is, of course, before consumer uptake of the internet, um, and so I f- basically dubbed myself an internet lawyer, and along with that, you know, studied as much as I could. I read up about, you know, the, p- the potential legal issues and some of the technical issues. I'm not an engineer, and I don't have a technical background, but I knew that I need to understand. I needed to understand some of the concepts, and so. Uh, you know, I became one of a small group that was focused on internet law. And some of the, some of the first cases around that had to do with copyright and trademark and domain names. And uh, interestingly enough, I had a case representing the Washington Post brought by uh, none other than the Church of Scientology, who I had been involved with as a clerk way back when. Uh, and uh, there was a former parishioner uh, who had published the quote unquote, scriptures of the Church of Scientology on the internet and the church sued him for copyright infringement. The Washington Post covered that case uh, along the way, quoting small snippets of what he had published and the Church of Scientology sued the Washington Post for copyright infringement because of that, quote uh, alleged republishing of copyrighted material. Uh, We invoked a fair use defense and and one on summary judgment. Uh, But I thought that was interesting coincidence that that the Church of Scientology reappeared in my in my professional life.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating. You know, so what other types of uh, Internet questions did you work on outside of privacy?
1: So there were lots of domain name cases uh, at the time, you know, whether people could use common words uh, as a domain name and thereby have an exclusive on, uh, on websites with those domain names. And the law was pretty unsettled for, for quite some time. Um, and, and frankly, the first privacy case that I had was not until 1998. Uh, again, through my nonprofit involvement, I had gone to the groundbreaking or the ribbon cutting, I should say, of the human rights campaign office here in DC on Rhode Island Avenue. And I met there the... Um, the uh, this the executive director of EPIC the Electronic Privacy Information Center whose brother worked at the Human Rights Campaign we traded cards I told him you know what I was doing next thing I know I got a call from him saying that there was a gay sailor in um, in Hawaii who was about to be ejected from the military for allegedly violating Don't Ask Don't Tell and his violation was circulating an email soliciting toys for the children of his fellow shipmates at Christmas time. And the email account he used was from AOL. And at AOL, he had kind of a fanciful username, B-Y-S-R-C-H, which which was understood to mean boy search. One of the people who got that email was his commanding officer uh, who was outraged by this so alleged telling of the world that he was gay. Um, And the commanding officer got uh, the JAG officer assigned to him as, and the JAG officer's uh, paralegal uh, to call AOL because the email was not signed or it was signed with only a first name. So they couldn't uh, definitively attribute it to the, to the uh, sailor that they were thinking of discharging. And so they call, had somebody call AOL and, and pretend to be a friend of my client and say that they received this email and they just wanted to confirm that the username was that of this individual and to get that confirmation in writing, which AOL blithely uh, provided uh, in violation of its terms of use and community standards. Um, We then sued alleging a violation of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act because the information that allowed AOL to send that confirmation to the Navy was transmitted electronically and the Electronic Communications Privacy Act has standards for the production of that kind of information. You need a subpoena or a warrant, if you're gonna get that, and which, the, which the government did not have. Um, the case, you know, we filed it as a TRO, and the case was assigned to the former general counsel of the uh, CIA and the SEC, a real government man. Uh, and we were concerned that he would side with the Navy, uh, kind of reflexively. And to our great delight, he did not. Interestingly, the law clerk who was assigned to that judge who had the job that I had 18 years earlier uh, was Professor Dan Solov, who is well known today as a preeminent expert on privacy law. So we really had the luck of the draw when it came to law clerks. And as it turned out with respect to the judge, because he wrote a fantastic opinion for us, finding the government at fault, but also uh, really uh, criticizing the don't ask, don't tell policy as a terrible, wasteful, discriminatory policy. Uh, as a result of that case, which was written up in the Washington Post, it was one of the few cases where the government had lost under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I had a friend here in DC uh, who I, I passed on the street and he said, I really liked what you did in that case. I, I'm doing some work for AT&T. They're looking for people to help them with some privacy law issues. Can I recommend you? And I said, sure. And uh, as a result, ended up doing a fair amount of work, privacy work for AT&T. And again, as I did with the internet law, um, my resolution to be an internet lawyer, I resolved to be a privacy lawyer almost exclusively and undertook to uh, you know to study as much as I could and understand as much as I could about the issue. One of the ways I did that was to get a contract with the Practicing Law Institute uh, to create a, their, its first treatise on privacy law. And that ended up being a 1300 page treatise which is still revised to this day. Uh, I convinced them to put my former firm's name on it, Proskauer, it was called Proskauer on Privacy, still is. And so Proskauer uh, is responsible for revising that treatise. But as a result of producing that treatise, I think I was able to raise my reputation uh, sufficiently that I was able to to attract um, a wide array of business in addition to to AT&T during the early 2000s when companies were really just starting to focus on how to uh, collect, uh, use and disseminate personal data. Um, so that's that's how we got into it.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, okay, so at that point, uh, when you were writing that, that book with PLI, did you start thinking about uh, public policy and, and FPF?
1: Well, happily, at and hired me to do a variety of public policy coalitions with uh, various people, including Mike McCurry, who had been press secretary to President Clinton. Uh, but they were all of short duration and limited in scope. And so I, I, I said to the general counsel of, uh, of um, AT&T that you know privacy is going to be around for some time to come, and it would benefit AT&T to uh, underwrite uh, an organization focusing on uh, emerging public policy issues uh, w- without an agenda, just uh, let, the, let the cards lie where they fall. And he agreed to do that and provided funding, uh, original funding for it. Later, we obviously uh, got funding from a number of other organizations, companies and foundations. Uh, and one of the very first things I did was hire Jules Polonetsky, be, Polonetsky because I'd known him Uh, for years. He had a a stellar reputation then as he does now Uh, and uh, he was at AOL and happily we were able to convince him to come join us in 2008. It was just the two of us at the beginning Uh, and it's quite amazing because I think we have upwards of 40 people full or part-time working working for us now.
0: Absolutely so talk a little bit you know more about those early days at uh, Future Privacy Forum.
1: So we were not uh, Self-incorporated, uh, we were actually operating uh, with the support of a uh, uh, a nonprofit. Uh, uh, what, what shall I call it? Uh, a company that that had done that had supported a number of at initiatives, and they they provided all the, the sort of the back office support for us. So we didn't have we we weren't doing our own budgets, we weren't doing our own PR or marketing, uh, we really weren't hiring very much. Uh, we had some senior fellows. Mary Cullen was one of our first, and she remains on the board today, Omer Tene, number Peter Swire. We were lucky to get some really fantastic people. Um, and so, uh, you know, after a while, AT&T said they were going to wean us from their funding, which meant we had to get other corporate support, and so our advisory board grew. Um, I was doing it as, you know, part-time as part of my law practice, but I had Lots of other things to do as well, so it it it, it, it finally at, at one point it made sense to get a you know a complete staff and a full organization, and that's that's what we did. I can't remember the exact year we did that, but uh, it was you know in the first first half of our creation.
0: So were you always working at the Future of Privacy Forum part time and working at a law firm the, the rest?
1: Yes, and in, in fact, I was, you know, full time as a partner at the law firm, and the Future of Privacy Forum was a client, if you will, if you will. So I was doing, you know, projects, speaking for it at conferences around the world, uh, going to privacy commissioner meetings and so forth on behalf of FPF, along with Jules. But we sort of divvied up uh, issues. We didn't have the distinct, uh, uh, you know, pro- programmatic. Uh, focus that we do now with with experts in each programmatic area leading the way we were kind of acting as privacy generalist handling. You know, lots of things focusing on what we thought were the the current emerging issues and that kind of affects my view of privacy today versus in the early days. Uh, There was, you know, in the early days, people like me could hold themselves out as privacy generalist and do almost anything. I think health privacy was one area where you needed greater specialty in, in HIPAA, but uh, you could certainly at least know the basics of other areas of privacy. And But today I think you're finding the need for greater specialization. And I think that's gonna increase over time where clients are gonna be looking for people with deep expertise in, for example, education privacy or connected car privacy uh hipaa uh, banking uh, you name it uh, and i think that's only going to increase over time fascinating
0: um yeah you know you, did you see sort of a similar trend with when you started in the internet there was just a general internet lawyer became more specialized i guess as it went
1: for sure because i think all of us held ourselves out as uh consultants or not experts but lawyers focusing on cybersecurity, and now you know, to deal with cybersecurity, you need to to really have s- substantial expertise.
0: Fascinating. Um, so, at that point, then you moved to uh, Hogan and Lovells, and you you started their uh, their privacy program there. So that was in 2009. Hogan Lovells always had a, a a a
1: top rate top rated privacy uh, practice. Uh, Marianne uh, Callahan, who went to the Department of Homeland Security. Department of Homeland Security uh, to be their chief privacy officer, and uh, Christine Varney, who went to lead the uh, antitrust division at the Justice Department, had just left uh, when the firm reached out to me because they were looking for new leadership. And I joined Marcy Weiler uh, to to lead the practice. Um, But I think it's fair to say that with the merger with Lovells in 2010 to become Hogan Lovells, it was Hogan and Hartson before that, um, it assumed a global footprint, uh, and it's then when the, when, when, uh, the privacy practice became uh, uh, distinct. It was part of the antitrust and consumer protection practice up to then. So in that sense, we started the privacy practice at the firm, and it's, uh, it's grown to be uh, uh, literally dozens of lawyers around the world. Uh, some from the old uh, Levels, some from the uh, old uh, Hogan hartson
0: Fascinating. So, talk a little bit, you know, more about those days, how it grew so much, and uh, to, to to become, you know, what what it is today.
1: Well, it grew along with the the needs of corporations to have uh, help, and that uh, that coincided with much greater regulatory scrutiny on what companies were doing and enforcement actions uh, either at the FTC or by state attorneys general or by European regulators and Asian regulators and so with that increased uh, scrutiny on what companies were doing with individual data there was greater need for uh, for outside legal assistance and so we we kind of addressed that market need by um, you know by by growing our practice
0: Great. So after that, then you started becoming, you know, very involved in uh, different board work, the board of, of FPF and uh, the IAPP privacy bar section. So, you know, talk a little bit about sort of your, your current work on so many uh, different boards.
1: So just a, a word on the privacy bar section. I had uh, mentioned to, to Trevor Hughes at IAPP that uh, IAPP would, would I think benefit, I'd been a member of IPP for a long time, would benefit, I think, from having a section focused on, on the lawyers who are members of IPP. And he agreed and asked me to help lead it, which I've done and it's grown, and I think provides a, a real uh, important forum for, uh, for privacy lawyers. But, uh, but as I think you could tell from my comments about uh, some of the charitable work I did along the way, uh, starting in the, in the late 80s, really, when I became a partner in the law firm, that's that's been kind of a trademark for me, you know. As a native Washingtonian, as somebody concerned with the community, I, I've always been involved in in uh, nonprofit organizations that that address social services, that address civil rights, and address the arts. Those are sort of the three my three categories. There are plenty of others like health and and uh, and uh, education, but those are those are my have been my three. Um, The future. I'm sorry. The Food and Friends has been the one in social services that I've been involved with since 1994 when I joined the board, and it provides meals to housebound people with life-challenging illnesses. It started as an aid services organization and has now grown to address people with a variety of illnesses and serves more than three million meals a year. Uh, it's got its headquarters in Northeast Washington. So that's, that's been a real uh, labor of love for me over, over these years. I've been involved with the Anti-Defamation League, which is one of the country's oldest civil rights organizations since 1988. And I chaired the local board in the 90s, and I'm on the national board uh, now. It's headquartered in New York, but it has 27 regional offices, and it's, it's one of the preeminent civil rights uh, organizations. And in terms of the arts, I, you know, I mentioned the National Symphony Orchestra. Uh, I'm on the board of something called Young Concert Artist, which identifies, as it sounds, young emerging uh, musicians and gives them a contract for concerts at, uh, in New York at either Lincoln Center or Carnegie Hall and in Washington, at the Kennedy Center. Um, so that was a great follow on to, to my uh, involvement with, uh, with the National Symphony Orchestra. And then there, there've been a, a variety of other smaller nonprofits uh, that I, I've either supported or been on the board of. And uh, it, it's been a great um, segue to my life in retirement. Um, I always did the nonprofit work as an adjunct to my professional work. And now it's uh, my you know, a principal focus, but I can still keep a hand in privacy, I'm happy to say. Uh, obviously through the Future Privacy Forum, but also uh, through friends I've made over the years, uh, for example, at Berkeley Law, Paul Schwartz asks me uh, uh, every semester to help teach a course, teach a class rather, uh, or to give a lecture, uh, which which I've enjoyed doing. And one of the things I've done through the Anti-Defamation League is focus on internet hate. Starting in 1996, I I formed the Internet Task Force at the Anti-Defamation League. And in 2013, co-wrote a book with the ADL National Director uh, called Viral Hate, Containing and Spread on the Internet. Uh, I also co-chaired an international uh, uh, commission with the speaker of the Knesset, we issued a report, uh, I think it was in 2014, but I still speak and write on the issue of internet hate it's only gotten uh, more difficult, Um, it hasn't gotten better. Uh, over the years, and so that still remains a focus, and I st- I still uh, write and speak about that topic. So I'm staying busy in in retirement, in addition to travel now that uh, the travel restrictions of COVID have have lifted. Um, and so you know, people, some of my friends who uh, are on a glide path to retirement, they asked me, "What should I do?" And I said, "Well, you should you should lay the seeds for retirement well before you retire, because otherwise, the day after you retire, you're going to find yourself with not much to do." And happily, I find myself with plenty to do, and it, it keeps me very uh, satisfied.
0: Well, wow, very inspiring! You know, to focus a little bit back again on the uh, cyber hate that you're working with uh, the Anti-Defamation League. So, what are some of the discussions you know happening now, and has it has it changed over time?
1: Well, well the principal focus, and it's apropos of, of President Biden's comments about Facebook and uh, the anti vaxxing uh, content on Facebook. Our principal focus is on the responsibility of, of the tech platforms to to deal with online hate, because it's it's there where it spreads. You know, it's with the emergence of social media in the mid 2000s. It's uh, it's only uh, it's grown geometrically, um, and so you know, at, at ADL, we're looking at possible solutions involving amendments to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, For years we've worked with the online platforms. Uh, We think that we can have greater cooperation from them. Last year, uh, ADL was part of a campaign called Stop Hate for Profit. uh, And it uh, convinced, it invited advertisers to, to stop, to do a pause in advertising on Facebook for the month of July. Uh, because of Facebook's uh, failures in in dealing with online hate, and this followed a speech by Sasha Baron Cohen on the subject, and to our amazement, more than a thousand advertisers uh, pulled their advertising from Facebook uh, for the month of July. And on the strength of that, the Stop Stop Hate for Profit uh, campaign continues with various uh, various aspects. So I think we understand that this is not something that we alone at ADL can do. It's got to be a a a Combined effort, a coalition uh, effort to, to to put pressure on the platforms to do better than they're doing.
0: Yeah, fascinating. So, moving to the your experience being an adjunct law professor. So, you know, talk a little bit more about that experience and um, how is teaching compared to actually you know being in, in practice and uh, just you know give a little bit of an insight to the listeners about uh, what it's like being a, a professor.
1: Sure. So in the mid-2000s, I guess it was, I uh, teamed up with uh, an associate at Proskauer named Bruce Boyden to share the teaching responsibilities for an Internet law course at Washington and Lee. Uh, you know, it's three hours from D.C. So we did it on Fridays and Saturdays for two hours in the afternoon and two hours in the morning. So the students had to be dedicated if they wanted to take this course. And then uh, Bruce and I split it up. I'm happy to say Bruce was so taken with the teaching Um uh, assignment that he became a full-time professor he's at marquette now and has developed a great reputation in the in academia as a privacy law uh professor and internet law uh professor i always enjoyed teaching i enjoyed that and i enjoy the opportunities to teach that i get elsewhere because it, it 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 involves me with the students who often think outside the box and and have uh creative new ideas that i otherwise wouldn't encounter uh, so I I encourage anybody who's practicing to, to to take the opportunity to teach if they can.
0: Great advice. So my last question: You've had such a you know prolific and fascinating career. So for those li- the listeners thinking uh, you know, how can they be the next Chris Wolf? What's some advice that you have for them? Uh, steps that you've taken uh, that uh, have gotten to you to to be where you are today.
1: So one of the
0: things I say when I'm asked that kind of
1: question is that everybody's success will take a different path. uh, And there is no recipe or formula uh, for success. Uh, I mentioned Admiral McRaven's uh, book, and I think that's sort of the bottom line of his his book. You 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 have to obviously play to your particular strengths. Some people will enjoy being on boards and engaging with the community. Some people will be more scholarly. I always said that I, I was uh, smart enough to be lucky or lucky enough to be smart enough to be lucky, to recognize when I was being lucky. Um, you know, you're gonna have opportunities in life and you need to take them. Um, and uh, it's very easy, particularly as an associate in a law firm to be focused on making your billable hours. And that indeed is important, but you need to take the extra time as well to do the extra things that I think ultimately will, will be the secret to your success.
0: That's great advice. And uh, with that, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Chris. Noah, thanks for having
1: me.